middle school teacher and math coach on a mission to help educators create a positive classroom community and reach every learner, all while finding balance in their own lives. Since I've left the classroom, I've learned so much about equity in education, building classroom community, math instructional practices that increase accessibility and learning, mindfulness and self-care, and ways to maximize time and impact through focused work and prioritization. Through conversations with experienced educators, you'll gain new knowledge, insights and inspiration, and practical ideas to try in your own classroom. I'll also share my many lessons learned over the years with the hope that it will accelerate your learning curve as a teacher. If you're an educator who's working hard to accelerate your students' confidence and understanding in math, you're in the right place. I want to be your mindful math coach, so let's go ahead and jump right in. Welcome back to the Mindful Math Podcast. I'm your host, Chrissy Allison, and today I'm continuing my story of how I moved out of ignorance about the depth and breadth of systemic racism in our country and towards anti-racism. In episode four, I shared some memories from my grade school, high school, and college years involving my own racial identity and early awareness of racial inequity in our country. I also talked about unconscious biases and deficit-based language that I used as both a teacher and an instructional coach that led to missed opportunities for connection and compassion that caused harm to my students of color. If you haven't tuned in to episode four, you'll probably want to go back and listen to it first since I'm sharing my story chronologically. So with that, I'll pick up where I left off in episode four. After leaving the school setting, I started working at a national nonprofit that was committed to becoming an anti-racist organization. As part of that work, I had the opportunity to participate in learning groups where we read, listened, and discussed issues of power, privilege, and race. And it was through these learning opportunities that I finally started to understand more about structural racism beyond slavery that I had been completely ignorant about. It was a true awakening about how our society has reached the place that it's at today. I really had no idea about the number of policies that were put in place explicitly to give power and privilege to white people and to oppress, discriminate against, and disempower people of color. I didn't realize how the media influenced my perception of different groups in our society. And I was unclear about my own unconscious biases and privileges I had as a white person. During this time, I heard stories of injustice that helped me see racism more concretely, whether it was a story from someone I knew personally or one of the many documentaries we have at our fingertips. I'll share two of the stories that have stuck with me and opened my eyes to the true injustices of our so-called criminal justice system. The first documentary that stands out in my mind is the tragic story of Khalif Browder, who was a 16-year-old black boy from the Bronx, New York. Khalif was accused of stealing a backpack in May of 2010 and then held at Rikers Island Jail without trial for three years. In that time, he spent a full two years in solitary confinement while at Rikers, which ultimately led him to develop depression and become paranoid. He made several suicide attempts. 
He died on June 6, 2015, when he hanged himself at his mother's home at age 22. The documentary is called Time, the Khalif Browder story. It's a six-part television documentary series on Netflix. After watching it, my beliefs about the criminal justice system shifted. The name criminal justice doesn't describe the reality. Khalif wasn't a criminal, and what he experienced is the opposite of justice. Another detail in Khalif's story is that the reason he spent three years at Rikers Island awaiting trial is because his family didn't have the $3,000 bail money necessary to secure his release. And when they were able to raise the money, a judge ruled that he was no longer eligible. Khalif's situation is not unique. According to the Marshall Project, who described themselves as a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization that seeks to create and sustain a sense of national urgency about the U.S. criminal justice system, stated, quote, about two-thirds of America's jail population, 450,000 people, are behind bars awaiting trial, and five out of six of those people are in jail because they could not afford bail or because a bail agent declined to post a bond, end quote. Hearing Khalif's story made me think about the intersectionality of socioeconomics and criminal justice in a way that I never had before. I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to think of a single white person I know who wouldn't be able to come up with $3,000 for bail almost immediately. If they didn't have it sitting in a bank account, it's almost 100% guaranteed that a close family member or friend would. Before I move on, one disclaimer about the Netflix miniseries is that Harvey Weinstein is one of the co-producers, along with Jay-Z and David Glasser. I watched it before Weinstein was accused and convicted of sexual assault and rape. I mention this in case it affects your decision to watch it yourself. A second example of our unjust justice system is documented in the four-part Netflix series, When They See Us. It was created and directed by Emmy-nominated Ava DuVernay and tells the story of the Central Park Five, five young Black boys accused and wrongfully convicted of assaulting and raping a jogger in New York Central Park. They are Antron McRae, a 15-year-old who spent six years in prison, Kevin Richardson, a 14-year-old who spent five and a half years in prison, Yusuf Salam, a 15-year-old who spent six years and eight months in prison, Raymond Santana, a 14-year-old who spent five years in prison, and Corey Wise, a 16-year-old who wasn't even accused himself initially, but accompanied Yusuf as he was taken in for questioning. They interrogated him and coerced him into a confession. He was tried and convicted as an adult since he was 16 years old at the time. Corey served 12 years in prison and suffered ongoing abuse and lengthy periods in solitary confinement. This group of five are who I immediately think of when my own kids ask if kids can go to jail. And even the fact that I think of people I learned about in a documentary instead of kids in my own family or circle of friends shows my privilege. And the fact that my kids don't know there is a difference between jail and prison, and the fact that I didn't even realize the difference until recent years, is further evidence of my privilege. One regret I have that's loosely related to this topic is allowing my son to dress up as a, quote, bad guy for Halloween. He dressed in dark clothing and carried a pretend money bag. Ever since then, he's been obsessed with the idea of jail. He builds jails with Legos, food, pillows, and he talks about it frequently. To him, it's a fun topic, a fun game, and I've been growing increasingly uncomfortable with it. From this point forward, I'm not going to allow him to play jail as a game, as if it's something fun, as if it's a lighthearted topic, because it's not. According to the NAACP's criminal justice fact sheet, 
African Americans are incarcerated at more than five times the rate of whites. Though African Americans and Hispanics make up approximately 32% of the U.S. population, they comprised 56% of all incarcerated people in 2015. African Americans represent 12.5% of illicit drug users, but 29% of those arrested for drug offenses, and 33% of those incarcerated in state facilities for drug offenses. Spending on prisons and jails has increased at triple the rate of spending on pre-K-12 public education in the last 30 years. Clearly, Black boys are at risk of losing their freedom due to our unjust judicial system. And if they are able to avoid that, their lives are at risk from another threat, gun violence. In an article on the Coalition of Schools Educating Boys of Color website, author Rhonda Bryant wrote, The gun violence issue most keenly affects Black men in America. While Black males are 6% of the United States population, they constitute 48% of the homicide victims who die by firearms in our nation. Over the years, a countless number of my former students have been victims of gun violence, including both Shane and Dante, whom I spoke of earlier. It's a tragedy on so many levels. Individuals lose their lives, and their families and friends experience grief and pain over the loss of a loved one. There are also financial burdens. Not to mention that we, the collective community, miss out on the gifts, talents, and contributions that they would have made to our society had their lives not been taken from them. During my time in the school setting, I didn't grasp the gravity of the situation. It wasn't until I had some distance from it and heard story after story of my own students, funny, smart, talented, creative students, falling victim to the system. And as I mentioned earlier, by this point, I was working at the educational nonprofit and beginning to understand the underlying systems of oppression that causes the injustices, the pain, and the hardship. Before that, I thought that while it was sad that more Black boys were victims of gun violence or spent time in prison, it was their individual choices that led to those consequences. I didn't see how the generational poverty, discrimination, and racist policies created the conditions that led to those results. But now I see how the system creates these inequalities, not the actions of individuals. On the Unlocking Us podcast with Brene Brown, Professor Ibram Kendi made the point that we can't look at the inequities that exist in our country and not believe that they are caused by an unjust system unless you believe that Black, Indigenous, and people of color are inferior. His comment made me think of the transitive property of equality which states that if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. Hear me out with this math connection. If you believe that Black, Indigenous, and people of color are equal in all ways to white people, so let's say A equals B, A equals Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and B equal white people, and if you believe that the actions and choices white people make are what lead to the disproportionately positive outcomes that we see, which in our equation will be defined as C. So then so far we have A equals B and B equals C. So then why does it not follow that A equals C? In other words, why don't Black, Indigenous, and people of color also have disproportionately positive outcomes as well if we really believe that it is our actions and choices that determine the outcomes and we believe that the races are equal? Now, the fact is that you can't mathematically have two disproportionately positive outcomes. The logic just doesn't add up. But set that aside for a minute. And let's think back to the transitive property. 
Looking at it this way, there are only two ways to reconcile the fact that we see disproportionately negative impacts on Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Number one, the first way is to admit that B does not, in fact, equal C, meaning that it's not actually the actions and choices of white people that lead to the inequities we see, looking at the statistics in every area, education, healthcare, incarceration, to name a few. Instead, it's that the system was set up to privilege white people and has done just that for over 400 years. Now, the second way is if you do not actually believe that A equals B. In other words, you don't really believe that the groups are equal. And if you don't believe that the two groups are equal, morally, intellectually, biologically, and emotionally, then by definition, you are racist. I know that may have been a little hard to follow, but essentially I'm attempting to use a mathematical property to illustrate what Professor Kindy says here. He says, We cannot think of disparities as the result of the personal choices of the individuals in groups. We emphasize the negativities that we see among those individuals who are black and then ignore the negativities among the individuals who are white. This is a quote from the June 3rd episode of the Unlocking Us podcast with Brene Brown. You cannot say that you believe all races are equal without acknowledging that the inequities we see are caused by the system. That is, the policies and practices that have been strategically put in place over the past 400 plus years to benefit white people while harming people of color are not the result of individual choices. Case in point, COVID-19 deaths. The following information is taken from an article written by Dylan Scott on April 17th, 2020, posted on CourageousConversations.com. He says, It has been clear for some time that the coronavirus pandemic is killing Black and Latino Americans at disproportionately high rates. But new data from the last few days reveals just how devastating the COVID-19 crisis has been for people of color. Starting in New York City, the American epicenter of the outbreak, Black New Yorkers are dying at twice the rate of their white peers. Latinos in the city are also succumbing to the virus at a much higher rate than white or Asian New Yorkers. The same trend can be seen in infection and hospitalization rates, too. The same thing we're seeing in New York City is happening across the country. Black and Latino Americans get infected with COVID-19 at alarmingly high rates and more are dying than we would expect based on their share of the population. A few horrifying examples. In Wisconsin, Black people represent 6% of the population and nearly 40% of COVID-19 fatalities. In Louisiana, Black people make up 32% of the state's population, but almost 60% of fatalities. In Kansas, 6% of the population is Black, and yet Black people account for more than 30% of the COVID-19 deaths. All that was taken directly from the website. So let me repeat Kindy's words here. We can't think of disparities as the result of the personal choices of the individuals and groups. So if your mind immediately goes to a place of blaming the victims, thinking that perhaps Black people weren't social distancing as much as they could have been or should have been, or wearing face masks, you're wrong. The causes of this are not the result of individual choices. The article goes on to explain that Black and Latino people are being put at risk more in their day-to-day lives and that long-standing economic and health disparities between white people and people of color are two structural reasons for the disparity. 
And Professor Kindy also shared that despite what some people thought, Black Americans were taking the virus more seriously and are taking the virus more seriously, as evidenced by social distancing and mask-wearing practices, than their white counterparts. Looking at this disproportionate data really helps me see and understand we have to stop blaming the victims. And this is something that I've come to understand more and more over time. So at this point in my journey, after 12 years in a school setting and then four years at a nonprofit, I took a position at another nonprofit, this time in a more intimate setting. Both organizations were working to become anti-racist, and so I had yet another opportunity for learning. I formed relationships with people quickly, built trust, and had some honest conversations about race, power, and privilege at a deeper level than I ever had before. I am so grateful for these opportunities and for the people who trusted me enough to share their stories and their truth. Something that really helped me understand how deep racism and racist policies run in our country was listening to the Seeing White podcast on Seen on Radio. And I'll link it in the show notes on www.mindfulmathcoach.com. I listened at the recommendation of a colleague, Lauren Meyer, and I'm so glad I did. The season is 14 episodes long, and it's all about being white in America and what that means. Honestly, if you're a white person in our country and you haven't listened to it yet, I cannot recommend it enough. And so that takes us to the present moment in the past few weeks. Recently, I listened to Rachel Cargill's public address on revolution entitled Revolution Now. She stated, this work does not end after white people feel better about what they did. This work ends only when Black people have justice in every vein that white supremacy has found to oppress. This includes everything from disproportionate maternal mortality, to the preschool-to-prison pipeline, to the adultification of our Black children, to housing discrimination, to voter suppression, to the prison-industrial complex, to police brutality. I couldn't agree more, and I thank Rachel for giving us those words to orient to. I want you, my listeners, to know that my work to become a better ally won't end after I'm done recording this episode. I'm in it for the long haul, and I hope you will join me in doing your work to become anti-racist and to help dismantle the systems of oppression that are all around us. To conclude this episode, I want to read you the email I sent the first week of June in the midst of our country's collective grief, anger, protests, and rioting to my Mindful Math Coach Insiders. Those are my email subscribers who receive weekly communication from me with inspiration, ideas, resources, and invitations to work with me. It said, This week I've done a lot of thinking about what it means for me to be an ally to people of color in our world, in the math education space, and in my personal life. I listened to an episode of the Unlocking Us podcast with Brene Brown the June 3rd episode featuring Professor Ibram X. Kindy on the topic of how to be an anti-racist, which is a book he's authored by the same name. His words resonated. To grow up in America is to grow up with racist ideas to constantly be rained on your head, and you have no umbrella. And you don't even know that you're wet with those racist ideas because the racist ideas themselves cause you to imagine that you're dry. And then someone comes along and says, you know what? You're wet. And these ideas are still raining on your head. Here's an umbrella. You can be like, thank you. I didn't even realize I was drenched. So I want to say 
Thank you to my friends and colleagues who have helped me take steps to move from ignorance towards anti-racism. I didn't even realize I was drenched. Up to this point, I've been indirect when talking about issues of social justice and race, saying things like, things going on in our world, instead of police brutality and the killing of innocent people like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. I've also limited conversations about hard-to-discuss topics with my most inner circle, trusted friends, family members who hold similar beliefs, and colleagues I know on a personal level. This week, I've made the decision to make anti-racism an explicit goal of the Mindful Math Coach brand because I feel it's my responsibility to stand up to and resist the racism that exists within ourselves, our systems, and our society. Here are the first steps I'm taking. Number one. I commit to ongoing learning about race, oppression, white supremacy, and fragility, and how to be an anti-racist. The past six years, I had the privilege of working for organizations that created space for learning and conversations about anti-racism. Now that I've moved on from those places, it's my responsibility to lead my own learning. Number two, I invite conversations about race and feedback about things I do or say that are ignorant, racist, or exclusive. I will work on my own mindset and investigate my own emotional triggers so that I can respond with thank you. I didn't even realize I was drenched. Number three, I will speak publicly about injustices happening in our country, especially violence against people of color and inequities that exist in our education system. This includes posting on social media, talking openly on podcast episodes, and writing emails to show support for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, and to inform, teach, and inspire white people who are even further behind on their journey from ignorance towards anti-racism. I'm here to listen to anything you have to say, and I'm happy to hold space if you want to vent, cry, scream, or do anything else to express how you're feeling. I ended the email there. Before we close out this episode, I want to remind you about Glenn Singleton's Courageous Conversations Compass, because it may be a helpful resource to support you as the myriad reactions come up in discussions and day-to-day interactions involving race and racism. I'll post a link to the Compass along with the documentaries, podcasts, articles, websites, and videos mentioned in today's episodes over on www.mindfulmathcoach.com. You can get there directly by typing www.mindfulmathcoach.com forward slash episode five, and that's the numeral five. Please join me on the journey towards anti-racism and strong math instruction for all students, but especially Black, Indigenous, and students of color. In telling my story, I'm taking responsibility for some of the racist beliefs and actions in my past, and I'm working to repair the harm I've caused. As I close out this episode, I want to reiterate that I'm committed to doing the work it takes to be a true ally to people of color in our country, and my work will not stop with this episode. So with that, I want to extend a warm and welcome invitation to join me on the journey towards anti-racism and equal opportunities for Black, Indigenous, and people of color. Thanks for joining me.